You're listening to the dmbnews.net podcast. Dave Matthews Band News for fans, by fans. Hi everybody, it's Colin. Welcome to episode two of the new and improved dmbnews.net podcast. This is the October 2013 edition, and coming up in a few minutes, you'll hear my interview with Peter Connors, who's the author of a new book on the history of jam bands. Peter and I had a great talk about the jam band scene that arose in the early 90s, and of course, Dave Matthews Band's role in that. But first, I was on a business trip a few weeks back when some news came out, and I didn't get a chance to post it on dmbnews.net, so let's go over that quick. Live Tracks 27 is coming out November 8th. It's a recording of the October 14th, 2010 show in Buenos Aires, and it was chosen to promote DMB's upcoming South American tour. When you pre-order the album, you can also buy a DMB Argentina soccer jersey or an Argentinian flag that replaces the yellow sun with a yellow fire dancer. And in other release news, we're getting some more Live Tracks vinyl. You'll remember that for Record Store Day back in April, DMB released 500 copies of Live Tracks Volume 1 on vinyl. For the next Record Store Day, which is on Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, DMB is releasing Live Tracks 2 and 3 on vinyl, according to the Wax Poetic blog. Volume 2 is 5 LPs on red vinyl, and Volume 3 is 4 LPs on green vinyl and they're each limited to 950 copies. Before we get to the interview with Peter Connors, I have three copies of his book, Jamerica, The History of the Jam Band and Festival Scene, to give away to listeners. To enter to win, listen to our full discussion that's coming right up. Then at the end, I'll ask a question that relates to what we talked about. Email me the answer at colin at dmbnews.net That's C-O-L-I-N at dmbnews.net. And if you're one of the first three people who answer correctly, you'll get a copy of the book. Our guest today is Peter Connors, author of the new book, Jam America, the history of the jam band and festival scene. Thanks for joining us, Peter. Thanks for having me, Colin. So the history of the jam band scene isn't what we've seen with other types of music when you um, associate the start of something big with a a certain event, like the Beatles going on the Ed Sullivan show, Uh, the jam band scene was a much more gradual grassroots evolution. Why do you think that was the case? Well, I think it was, you know, there's so many different bands involved, first of all. Um, And those bands were, you know, spread out across the country. I mean, there seemed to be a real strong focus in the Northeast, um, but, you know, there's, there's, of course, Dave Matthews' band was down south, and Widespread Panic was down south, so, um, you know, it was, it was a very spread out uh, group of individuals who were, seemed to be coming from a, a similar place musically, and, um, and they just sort of started to emerge, you know, in the, in the early 90s. And, you know, I think maybe the first Horde tour could be noted as, you know, a a larger scale emergence of those bands onto the scene. But you're absolutely right. There was no particular watershed moment where all of a sudden everybody became aware of these bands. Um, And I think that's to their credit. And I think that's also why so many of them are still out there playing 
you know, they took the time to develop their audiences and, um, you know, create these wonderful bodies of music and to improve as musicians. And as a result, what you have is musicians who are able to have a whole career as opposed to one big year on the pop charts or something like that and then be gone. Right. I don't think you would say that any of these bands are overnight successes. No, not at all. I mean, you know, if anything, in the two years I spent, you know, researching and doing interviews for the book, um, in particular, I just gained a, such an amazing respect for the time and the energy. I mean, the, the schedules that these guys have are really grueling. These tour schedules are just unbelievable. You know, from the band to the crew to everybody involved, they really they work their asses off, and they have right from the start. Um, so, yeah, I mean, every time now when I see a band get up on stage, I have an even deeper respect for the blood, sweat, and tears and hours and miles that went into getting them up there. Most of the book focuses on um, what you were just talking about, that the more recent history of the jam band scene going back to the start of the, the Horde tour in the early 90s. Can you just um, spend a couple of minutes talking about what led up to that, um, you know, Obviously, that's kind of when it exploded and, and kind of went mainstream as much as something like this can go mainstream. But, um, you know, obviously bands like the Grateful Dead had been around for significantly uh, longer before that. And even bands like Fish had been around for the better part of a decade before everything kind of blew up at that point. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, in the book, I, I sort of you have to pick some sort of starting point. And I really didn't want to go, you know, so far deep into... You know, you could easily get into the 60s bands, and, and a lot of people said, you know, why isn't so-and-so, you know, why isn't Jimi Hendrix in the book or Jefferson Airplane or whatever it might be? Um, and I really didn't want to make, make this, that kind of history. I wanted to start with the bands that I consider really the first-generation jam bands um, outside of all the 60s bands, and um, a lot of those bands did end up playing on the Horde tour. So, you know, we're talking really late 80s, early 90s, bands that started right around then. And there was a, uh, a series of concerts at a place called Arrowhead Ranch that was in the Catskill Mountains that happened uh, the year before Horde started. And a lot of the bands that played on Horde um, in that first year, like Blues Traveler and Spin Doctors and Aquarium Rescue Unit and so forth, um, played at Arrowhead Ranch the summer before Horde started. And it was also run by um, Bill Graham Productions, and in particular David Graham, who was managing Blues Traveler at that time. Um, so, it, of course, w as soon as you bring up Bill Graham, you have a connection immediately back to the Grateful Dead. And so that, that line between the bands, that sort of lineage is, is there, and it's always going to be there. Um, but, you know, I mark Arrowhead as sort of an emergence, and I think that's when the kernel of this idea of getting all these bands together and touring them as a festival um, really started. And then we see Horde, and, you know, from there on, I think the jam band scene, um, you know, became better known across the country. You mentioned the Spin Doctors, and that was one of the things that I found um, informative and surprising about the book was a lot. I don't think if you asked a lot of people, they would say that they considered the Spin Doctors a jam band. They were just kind of one of those bands that, showed up on MTV and had these catchy four-minute songs, and a lot of people probably don't know what their reputation was before they got to that point. Yeah, I mean, you know, and and to be honest, uh, my interviews with Chris Barron um, was one of my favorite ones. And it's, yeah, it's easy to, to overlook, you know, their background 
building up to that um, explosion onto MTV. But they were, you know, um, they were always playing at the Wetlands. I mean, they were a huge New York City band. They played this little club called the Nightingale, um, and then they moved their way up to Wetlands. And, you know, right away their scene and blues traveler scene was very much intermingled. Um, and, you know, as a result, the Wetlands sort of became, the, especially before Horde Tour, it became really a headquarters for jam bands that were just starting to come around. And John Popper talks about this, as does Chris Barron. You know, they were both New York City-based. They played there all the time at, at those clubs. So when other bands like Fish or Dave Matthews or whoever it might be came into town and played the Wetlands, which they all inevitably did, um, you know, those guys sort of ended up being emissaries to the New York scene in a lot of ways. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, John Popper ended up being sort of at the helm of Horde as well, because he he sort of knew everybody, because everybody was coming through New York City, playing the wetlands, you know, they were in New York City, so it was just one of those things where, you know, you end up by default becoming, you know, the voice uh, of a scene or, or an organizer or whatever it might be. Um, so, oh, Spin Doctors, yeah. But, the, you know, the Spin Doctors did, I mean, they, they were very much a, in that jam band mold. I think the difference with them is that Chris Barron, and he says this in the, my interview in, the, in Jamaica as well, he's always very interested in writing a, a, a song, if not a pop song, just a very you know coherent um, song uh, that could be played on the radio. And you know he's unabashed about that. He doesn't apologize for it at all, nor should he. Um, you know he'll say, "I love bands like Steve Miller Band and, and so forth, who wrote these great songs that did you know make it on the radio." And he wanted to write the song that was everybody's favorite song. So I think, you know, for, for those reasons, they did have some really snappy songs that crossed over into the pop world. But if you ever saw them live, particularly at that time, they did a lot of extended jams um, and, you know, really got out there musically and, and always had a lot of fun doing it, too. So, I, uh, yeah, I, I certainly think that they belong in the history of the jam band scene. I was going to get to this later, but um, it kind of makes sense to go into it now, talking about that line between being a jam band and then also having commercial success and writing concise popular songs i feel like that's something that relates to dave matthews band a lot as well they get lumped in with the jam band crowd a lot but musically and commercially they're a very different band than a lot of those that they get compared to do you consider dmb a jam band and and why does that jam band label stick with them even though they've kind of moved on from where they were back in the um, early 90s. Yeah, you know, I think that they are really such a unique um, unique band in this discussion because they have had such amazing commercial success. Um, but at the same time, you know, as with Spin Doctors, I mean, if you see Dave Matthews' band live, they jam. You know, they'll, they'll take those songs, even the ones that are on the radio, and they'll, you know, extend these different musical passages and get really, you know, intricate with them and, and give each other musical space to, to expand and to improvise. And um, I think, you know, to their credit, too, even though it is, you know, the Dave Matthews Band, I think as individual players, they really give each other a lot of space. They seem to really appreciate each other musically. And, you know, Dave Matthews, as, as the lead singer, is certainly willing to step back and let his band, you know, explore the space, as, as is he. So I think that, you know, you, they are an interesting case. And, and John Popper spoke about them pretty eloquently in the book as well, saying, you know, boy, let me see if I can actually find the, the quote. 
Jonathan, if you don't mind, I'd love to read you what he said about Dave Matthews, because I think it was great. He was sort of going through the different bands and their scene, and he says, uh, you know, he's saying, well, Widespread Panic has this cult-like following, and Fish has that too. But then he says, Dave Matthews, I think, has done the most of any of us, because he has a little of that cult-like following, a little of the jam thing going, and a ton of pop success. He also has that Springsteen thing going. I mean, that guy can pretty much do whatever he wants. I say Dave Matthews was the smartest of all of us, or the luckiest. You know, that's the thing. I don't really discern between smart and lucky, lucky, because what's really the difference? Let's say you have a capable brain. That's lucky anyway, which is, you know, a great sort of example of the way that John Popper speaks is very engaging speaker, but I think he's dead on, you know, with his statement about Dave Matthews. He's got a little bit of all those different things in there, and he really is unique in that community. Um, at the same time, certainly embraced by that community, and I would imagine, you know, that that's something that he appreciates as well. Right. I mean, I think a lot of bands probably had um, the aspirations to be as successful as DMB has uh, become, and I don't know if Dave himself had those initially, um, you know, when you read about what was happening in 19, the late, the late 80s and early 90s in Charlottesville, I think he was more interested in trying to get an acting gig and bartending was bartending and just kind of happened to have these songs and found, found this band and all kind of came together really quickly. And Yeah, well, and I think, you know, right away, too, he surrounded himself with the best possible musicians that, that were, you know, in Charlottesville. I mean, and I still, when I listen to Carter Beaufort, you know, play drums, I, I still, I have to say, every time I listen to Dave Matthews' band, I listen to him playing drums, because he just blows my mind. I think he's such a phenomenal drummer, and they're all amazing musicians, but, you know, I think Dave Matthews knew right away that he was surrounded by, by these amazingly talented people, and, and my understanding is he sort of he had his songs. He got these wonderful musicians who he was, you know, watching play in this, in the bar as he was bartending. And uh, and he sort of said, "Here's the songs," and he let them, you know, develop the songs with him. And you know, that's how you gain a voice as a band, as opposed to just the singer-songwriter thing, um, which he easily could have become. Um, and I think again, that's you know, to his credit. But I mean, the band is phenomenal. You know, they're just amazing players. The other component that factors into Dave Matthews band getting lumped in with a lot of other jam bands um, is the fact that their business model, especially early on was modeled after the grateful dead with the constant touring and the tape trading and the word of mouth and the, you know, the conscious effort not to get too big too quickly. How difficult was that given the current music, uh, mainstream music climate back in the early nineties? You know, it's, <laughs> it's. I think it's pretty incredible. I mean, you know, there's a certain um, model that that of touring and building your audience, and it's a very much a grassroots model that, in many ways, you know, was handed down by the Grateful Dead. That a lot of the jam bands have taken, and they've you know used that as their model for for how to thrive, but also how to survive long term in a music business that can chew you up and spit you out very fast. And for the most part, you know, the music industry isn't looking for these bands. I mean, they're not, you know, it's not even a blip on their radar. And I always tell people, you know, take, for example, you have a band like Fish who can play and sell out quickly Madison Square Garden 
you know, for four nights on New Year's Eve every year, and yet gets no, you know, radio play, almost no, you know, write-ups in mainstream music publications and so forth. They're sort of, you know, they're off the radar, but they're a force to be reckoned with. Um, and Dave Matthews, you know, of course, took it to the next level that really none of these bands got to as far as the commercial commercial success. Um, and to be honest, I don't know exactly how that worked for them. And I, you know, had a very engaging, um, extensive interview with Tim Reynolds uh, that's also included in the book. And frankly, I don't think he quite knew, you know, exactly how it happened. And that's where I think you get back to this mix of, you know, talent, really hard work, um, and also that little bit of luck that, that keeps you going. And I, I, I don't know, you know, what to ascribe it to, other than, you know, I think at the, at the time that Dave Matthews sort of broke through on radio, there was also, like, Counting Crows. Um, you know, there were some other bands that were having similar styles of music and were getting radio airplay that sort of cut through that static of, of grunge and, you know, even hip-hop and things like that. And you can almost look at it and say, well, maybe it was a reaction to those things because the music was much, uh, much mellower. It was much more song oriented, and it was frankly, it was much more, you know, the positive, the sort of energy and the vibe of the music was more positive. So you can also look at it as, you know, a timing issue. Maybe these guys, you know, were able to break through at just the right time. That radio was ready for something different. And I think that they probably were lumped in, you know, at some level because the the industry always needs categories. Um, maybe they were lumped in as alternative, but it was sort of the alternative to the alternative type of thing. Right. I mean, um, it was it was on alternative radio at the time, but it's you know like four guys playing bass, drum, and acoustic guitar and singing isn't really alternative if you look right. at the grand scheme of rock and roll music. That's right. You know, but but you know, now I'm thinking of other bands too, like Soul Asylum. Mm-hmm. You know, were were very big right then. A lot of bands that you know had that sort of sound that they they sounded great put together, you know, as, as a mixtape or as a radio playlist or whatever it might be. So I'm sure it was timing, talent, you know, hard work, a little bit of luck, all those different things. So you got to talk to a lot of very interesting people for the book. Um, you already mentioned a couple, Chris from the Spin Doctors and John Popper and Tim, of course. Who was the most um, interesting person to talk to? Oh, geez. You know, I was amazed in general at how eloquent you know, so many of these musicians are um, and how willing they were to sort of delve into their history, which, frankly, you know, a lot of people don't want to do that, and I don't blame them, but, you know, a lot of them were just so willing to sort of step back from what they were doing, you know, today and delve into their histories and talk about how it all worked together or talk about kindred spirits and bands and things like that. So, you know, I really enjoyed talking to John Popper. I thought he was just, you know, he's a great storyteller. He's a great presence. Um, you know, he's very outgoing and gregarious and, and fun to speak to. Um, I, you know, I, I came from a Grateful Dead background, and I followed them around for years and years, and still, you know, that's, that's my band. So for me, getting able, you know, being able to speak to some of the members of the Grateful Dead and getting to interact with them in different ways, you know, will always be a high point for me because that's, you know, that's my thing. Um, but I can't say that there was a single interview that I walked away from without, you know, getting a better understanding of this music scene, get a better, getting a better understanding of, um, you know, that musician in particular and where they fit into the larger scope of things. And, um, you know, Bella Flex, very, very interesting guy to talk to. He's completely different point of view with all his, you know, world music experience that he's done. And, um, 
you know. Bell is another one of those guys where he's been exposed to so many different audiences through the relationships that he's developed in the jam band community. Um, and that's just one of the examples that I can think of that I wanted to talk to you about of people in the community, you, you know, using the, the crowd that they've gathered over the years to expose their fans to others in um, just kind of building the jam band community in the scene that way. Yeah, you know, I think that that's, especially now with, there's so many festivals, you know, there's, of course, Dave Matthews has his, his Dave Matthews Band Caravan Festival, but there's festivals all over the country now that um, these musicians really just do this, these circuits of festivals, um, you know, especially through the summer, they can just play a different festival almost every day, or, you know, at least one a week, and they keep seeing, you know, there, there's all these musicians that are sort of doing this circuit, and so there's a lot of uh, crossover, not only backstage and seeing each other and so forth, but also on stage, people doing, you know, what we call sit-ins, sitting in with, you know, a, one band or another. And um, in general, I think this is a really ripe time for the cross-pollination of the music scene, um, especially within this community. And people, you know, there's, there's not that feeling in this scene of like, oh, so-and-so played with that band or did a sit-in with that band and, and you know, there's not that sort of possessiveness of, like, how dare they do that. I think, you know, we're talking about musicians who love to jam and who love to sit in and talk to each other, and I think it really helps the music grow. But, you know, that said, even going back to the first horde, you know, there, there's, and there's a photo of it in the book as well. You would have, you know, Blues Traveler uh, playing, let's say Widespread Panic playing, and then Blues Traveler coming on next, and opposed to just switching over and taking a break and letting the bands, you know, set up. They would just play one into the other, and so John Popper would end up there, you know, on stage playing as some of the guys from Widespread Panic were playing, and then they'd drop out, and other guys from Blues Traveler would come in, and that was very much an intentional, you know, in intentional on the part of the, the organizers and promoters. Um, so there's always been that, you know, aspect of the jam band scene. And that even happened on Dave Matthews Band's first single, John Popper does the harmonica solo on the studio album. I think it's funny. There's a funny story behind that. I think something like John was in the studio and Dave had to run to the bathroom. And he, by the time he came out, John had already recorded the solo and left for the day. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I believe it. It's a good story. Yeah, you know, these guys, uh, the, the respect that they have each other for each other is just great, you know, and it's it's a rare thing, I think, in a lot of ways, especially in artistic communities. They have people be so so outspoken fans of other bands and other musicians and artists, and, you know, you can just hear the affection that they have for each other, and, of course, some of that is, you know, they've been crossing paths together and sort of coming up together for, you know, 20, 25 years now. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, it, you know, there's a lot of those cool stories. What did you learn about the jam band and the festival scene that you uh, hadn't known before you started working on this book? Um, you know, I think the main thing is the way that the festival scene had grown. Um, you know, I, I was really into the Grateful Dead and followed them, and then I dropped out of that, and, and you know, well, Jerry Garcia died, so I was sort of forced to drop out of it. But then, you know, had some kids and started a family and so forth, so when I decided to do this book, part of it was, you know, I wanted to, to look back, and I realized it had been about 20 years since Horde started, and, and I was curious to see, you know, how the scene had grown, because I, I wasn't as in touch with it. I was in touch with the individual bands, but not 
at that level um, of really getting down and going to festivals and so forth. So once I started to do that and check it out and go to festivals, first of all, I was amazed at the number of festivals there are now. Um, I mean, it's just, you know, it's incredible to me still how many festivals there are around the country and how much overlap there is between musicians. And each region has their own flavor, but, you know, a lot of the bands show up at at these festivals over and over across the country. Um, So that was amazing to me. And I think also seeing the way that um, fans sort of schedule their concerts now around festivals because for me it's you know I would go to the Grateful Dead and I would just follow them around the country from venue to venue and show to show but it seems like a lot of kids who maybe would have been doing that back in the day of the Grateful Dead now do that with festivals so they might go to three festivals or four festivals as opposed to going to see one band for five or six you know different shows across the country so I thought that was a really interesting development. Yeah, and these festivals are expanding a lot in terms of the types of music that they cover, too. So it's kind of taking that cross-pollination that we were talking about before and going even wider with it and exposing people not just to other jam bands but to other genres of music that maybe they would not have um, been exposed to before. Oh, absolutely. You know, and and you can hear it cropping back up then in in their music. I mean, it's, yeah, there's so much of that going on. And I think right now there seems to be a real, um, you know, the whole jamgrass movement of, like, bluegrass musicians who are going farther and farther out with their jams, and you can see that working its way into into different um, bands' music as well. So, you know, there's always... And I think the cool thing is that might be the thing for the next few years. You know, there might be a strong influence of that, and then it might go a different way. But the bands that stay in there and that keep playing year after year... So they'll take a little piece of that, you know, and then years down the road, it'll come up in a different song or, you know, there might be a a world music influence or there might be a reggae thing or whatever it might be, but they end up becoming, you know, part of the flavor of each band. And, you know, that's the beauty of having bands that are are on the road and and doing it for 20, 30 years. It's just, you know, their catalogs get so rich. And to uh, wrap things up, I wanted to ask you about going more into the, the future of the jam band and festival scene, you know, between these festivals and technology with social networks and uh, the availability of digital recordings and things like Spotify, you have the means, you have far more means now to build a grassroots following than you may have in the past if you're an up and coming band. But you're also up against a lot more competition because everybody has those same means as you do. Given those changing dynamics, how do you see this scene? evolving in um, the way that bands interact with other fans and, and grow their audiences? Yeah, well, you know, so many of these bands, and if I'm not mistaken, Dave Matthews, I know he used to. Does, does he still allow taping? He does. Okay. So, you know, I think that that's uh, a really important um, difference with the jam band community. And maybe, you know, I put it down as, as maybe a defining factor. I mean, at least something to take into account when you're sort of drawing lines about who's a jam band and who's not and so forth. I think the willingness of these bands to allow taping um, and to understand that that only helps them, you know, when you have fans trading shows around the country discussing them, um, that's been a huge part of what's made jam bands um, last and what brings people in and what builds their audiences. So I think that, you know, for bands that allow that and have allowed that, nothing really changes too much for them because they're, for the most part, and again, Dave Matthews aside, for the most part they're not really concerned as much about record sales. I mean, it's, it's always nice, and it's certainly a part of their business model, 
but most of them, you know, would be sunk if they had to depend solely on um, record sales for a living. So they make their living out on the road and touring and maybe through merch and things like that. Um, and so I think that, if anything, you know, the, the music industry would be wise to look at the ways that these bands are doing business because it's a, it's a way for them to survive in an industry that is really struggling. And at the very least, I think for new bands coming up, you know, they should really take a look at the way that, that a lot of these jam bands have operated, including Dave Matthews for sure. Um, you know, the way they've operated and they've kept going for so long because, uh, you know, most bands are will come and go within a few years and that's it. And these bands are in it for the long haul. And part of that is developing a business model that allows you to survive. The name of the book is Jamerica, the history of the jam band and festival scene. For more information, you can visit jamerica.net. That's J-America, all one word, dot net. And follow them on Twitter at Jamerica420. Peter Connors, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Colin. I appreciate it. So that's it. I hope you enjoyed the interview. To enter to win a copy of the book, Jamerica, send me an email and tell me which musicians quote Peter read during the podcast. My email address is colin at dmbnews.net. That's C-O-L-I-N at dmbnews.net. The first three people who respond correctly will win a copy of the book. Remember, you can stay up to date on all the latest Dave Matthews Band happenings by going to dmbnews.net, following us on Twitter at dmbnewsnet, and liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash dmbnews. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the dmbnews.net podcast on iTunes so you'll download the latest episodes automatically as soon as they become available. Thanks for listening. <laughs>